Welcome to the Besties with Breasties podcast. Sarah Hall here. I am a certified health and wellness coach, athletic trainer, mom, and breast cancer survivor. I help women overcome their own mind drama to make mind shifts that open up the possibility for their most empowered and energetic life. And I am Beth Wilmus, author, speaker, and founder of a human investment organization, otherwise known as a nonprofit called Faith Through Fire. Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. It's so, it, I feel like we need a new inch, like a new... You know, a new way to like yeah bring start in the, the episode because you know what we say every time is good the morning. weather the weather's beautiful good morning yeah yeah I don't know anyway sure. Maybe I should just... we start with a joke <laughs> knock knock no no mm-hmm. no. Yeah, no too soon yeah <laughs> too, not too soon that doesn't fit all right we're squirrely we're talking to a guest today about the origins of cancer which. I think is really interesting because he takes an alternate view to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to jump into that as part of our medical skepticism series. But I was thinking about it on the way over on the drive over about research, you Mm -hmm. know, because our guest is a professor and a researcher. And I was thinking about how it would be really cool. I feel like there's not a lot of creativity in research, and I have nothing. Yeah. To, I have nothing to base that on. Like no. Well, fact- I mean, I think that there's probably a little creativity into like what are they going to research, and like what combination of things are they? You know. I but, mean, I but then guess. outside of that, now it's. So let me tell you where my brain took it. Okay. <laughs> How cool would it be if you had all these really super intelligent researchers mm-hmm. dumb down the problem for us, mere mortals, right? <laughs> like so, mere mortals. I think what we should do is we should have this crazy summit where they bring in people from all different kinds of walks of life. So we bring in astronomers and we bring in lawyers and we bring in salespeople and we bring in teachers and we bring in, you know, the trash men and we bring in, you know, the fishermen and we we bring in the farmers and we bring all these people from all these different walks of life with all this various experience in their field of specialty. Mm-hmm. And we have these really brilliant researchers and people dumb it down for us. Here's the problem. This is what we're trying to solve. And then we all have this huge collaborative like process. Yeah, that is a dream world. I know, but how <laughs> people co- don't love collaillaborating. They, they want to be the smartest person in the room. They, but I think like think yes, about what could be that gleaned be nice. from all yeah. these different thought processes and all these different professions. And it's like we're just not doing that. Yeah. And so I I have this recurring dream where that happens. Hmm. And I am so excited because I'm sitting in this room. They dumb down the question, and then we all get to work to figuring out. Mm-hmm. What do we know? Yeah. What does our... Because there is that saying out there that you're too close to the problem, so you don't see the, like, simple solution. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So I wonder, like, if we injected a little more creativity, if we couldn't find some really interesting avenues Change the face of research. Right. (laughs) Maybe maybe Faith Through Fire can have their own research branch, and it's just a bunch of random people. And here goes the dreamer again. Spitballing ideas. Yeah. Okay, so today our guest is Dr. Thomas Seafried. He's an American professor of biology, genetics, and biochemistry at Boston College. And he received his PhD from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign in... It's Urbana. Oh. Urbana-Champaign. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Urbana. Urbana. (laughs) Sorry. 
All right. His postdoctoral fellowship studies were in the Department of Neurology at Yale University of Medicine. Have you heard of it? (laughs) And he served there as an assistant professor in neurology. So he did some undergraduate work at the University of New England and received a master's degree in genetics from Illinois State University. And his research focuses on mechanisms of chronic diseases such as cancer, epilepsy, neurodegenerative lipid storage disease, and calorie-restrictive diets. So Dr. Seafried has been in over 150 peer-reviewed publications. I would say he's pretty qualified. For sure. Right? He's one of those brains that we really want to pick. So today, we're going to talk about how cancer can be viewed through two different perspectives. And then the position Dr. Seafried holds and why. Yeah, and how integrating both theories could benefit cancer patients. But before we do that, let's from our first sponsor. Thrivent is a proud sponsor of Faith Through Fire. Thrivent believes money is a tool and not a goal. The Gateway Financial Group with Thrivent is local to the St. Louis area and can work with you to create a financial strategy that reflects your priorities and helps you protect the things that matter to you, like family and giving back. Please call 314-783-4214 to schedule a free consultation with one of Thrivent's Gateway Financial Advisors. Welcome. Thank you for being here, Dr. Seafried. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Of course. So I wanted to kind of explain to everybody how I got pointed your way. I actually had a patient that we were talking to point me to your research. And then after that, I heard the podcast that you did with Peter Atiyah, which for all the medical people listening right now, if you want the you want the medical jargon and the and the and the deep in the weeds stuff, you need to go listen to that podcast. But I'm super interested in talking to you today after hearing that. So I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. So after I reached out to schedule this with you, you provided me a paper that you wrote called Considerations of Ketogenic Metabolic Therapy as Complementary or Alternative Approach to Managing Breast Cancer, which out mm-hmm. of the gate was like a wow moment for me. I was like, what? My first thought was we're going to control cancer with the keto diet, but it's a little bit more involved in that. So for everybody listening, can you kind of explain in layman's terms how cancer can be viewed through two different perspectives, the genetic versus the metabolic? Yeah, well, right now where the field has has been indoctrinated for several decades that, uh, that cancer is a genetic disease, Uh, caused by somatic mutations that lead to dysregulated cell growth. And and I think people should know that the simple definition of cancer is is dysregulated cell growth, cell division out of control. And it can happen in any kind of a tissue or organ or something along these lines. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what is causing cells if you want to say in the breast, the colon, the bladder, the brain, what 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 is what are causing these cells to grow out of control? And the current dogma, which is an irrefutable truth, the silent assumption is that these mutations lead to changes causing the cells to grow out of control. And that's the the somatic mutation theory of, of cancer, which actually underlies and is responsible for most of the new kinds of therapies that you see, immunotherapies that you hear about, they, they are based on cancer being a genetic disease. The alternative and correct view of what this disease is, it's, it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. The dysregulated growth comes from an insufficiency of energy through oxygen, respiration. The organelle that controls that is in the cell, it's called the mitochondrion. 
And that organelle is the organelle that controls the cell cycle and is responsible for the differentiated state or the quiescence of cells. When that organelle becomes corrupted from a variety of different insults, cell loses its its control and grows in a dysregulated way. The mutations that are there are downstream effects. They're not the cause of the dysregulated growth. They're the effect of dysregulated growth. So this is two very fundamental different explanations for the origin of cancer, which is dysregulated cell growth. The dominant view is that it's the mutations that lead to the dysregulated growth. The metabolic view is that the mutations are effects. They're not the cause. And the dysregulated growth comes from a disturbance in the ability of cells to generate energy through oxygen. This will eventually become recognized as the origin of cancer and leads to then the types of therapies that will be far more effective with minimal toxicity. The problem right now is the field is locked into this incorrect view, despite massive evidence, scientific evidence to say that the cancer cannot be a genetic disease. Absolutely not from the, from the evidence that uh, we and others have shown. And yet we continue with this momentum. And as the result, the persistence of toxic chemicals, radiation, chemo, and all these other things that you hear about persists because the field refuses or cannot accept the fact that it's not what they thought it was. So this is the great tragedy that we're dealing with today. This is this is so fascinating on mm-hmm. so many levels. So for a long time, we as breast cancer patients have been told most breast cancers are not genetic, right? Like so those BRCA patients, they're told theirs is genetic, but are, you know, for example, I don't have BRCA or CHECK2, so mine isn't genetic. I think it gets confusing when we start talking about cancer from a genetic perspective versus a metabolic perspective. So those are two separate lanes, correct? We have inherited risk factors like BRCA1 and some of these others. But we also have acquired genetic damage. That's called the somatic mutations. Those are acquired in your life. So, so lifestyle. Um, lifestyle, yeah, lifestyle, environment. Yeah. One thing is common to all cancers, whether it's a breast cancer, a lung, brain, colon, whatever, they are all fermenting, which means they generate energy without oxygen. That's the common phenomenon of all these cancers. Because one thing that's very interesting is cyanide, the the poison that can kill you very, very quickly. If you were to take cyanide, you'd be dead within a minute because you immediately shut down oxidative phosphorylation, the ability of cells to generate energy by, by air, by oxygen. And if you block that, and that's in the mitochondria, if you block that capability, you die very, very quickly. Cancer cells can live in cyanide. They live without oxygen. So you say to yourself, well, how, is, how are they doing that? Well, when they gradually lost their ability to generate energy from oxygen, they upregulated or, or gradually instituted these ancient pathways for energy metabolism without oxygen. The, these are the same ways that cells on our planet, 3.5 billion years ago, we had living organisms on our planet when there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. And these these organisms grew like crazy, uh, uh, dysregulated growth, and they would die only when the availability of the fermentable fuels would disappear. And we're seeing the same thing with the cancer. We have not found any cancer that can live uh, without the sugar glucose or the amino acid glutamine. 
And we have shown how each of these fuels are fermented. So they are driving the dysregulated growth because you have to realize without energy, nothing can grow. So when a person would take cyanide, they would die instantly because all of the energy metabolism in their body would be gone in very short within, within a minute. Cancer cells don't respond to that. They, they get their energy from a very ancient pathway where, where oxygen is not required. And all cancers are like that. We have not yet found any cancer cell that can survive without glucose and glutamine. We have found no other fuels that can keep these cells alive. So knowing that, then the strategy to kill or manage cancer becomes pretty straightforward. When you can't use your mitochondria, you can't burn ketone bodies or fatty acids. So you are dependent on fermentable fuels. Ketone bodies and fatty acids are non-fermentable. They cannot be fermented. So only fermentable fuels will drive the dysregulated growth of the cancer cell. And we have interrogated all of these different amino acids and fuels. And the only ones that we can find are the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamine. So if we can target and take those two, uh, reduce those two, the availability of those two fuels while transitioning the body over to ketone bodies or fatty acids, then you have a clear strategy for managing cancer. Can I ask you a question? Because I hear, I hear glucose and then that makes me think sugar, right? Mm. And, and patients yeah. have been told over and over again, there's you know widespread belief among some cancer patients that sugar fuels cancer. Is that what we're saying here, that sugar is basically fueling cancer? And is that tied to insulin resistance or is that a separate no, process? No, no, we haven't. Sugar is the two fuels that that are that are essential for keeping this growth, this regulation is, is a, yeah, glucose. When table sugar consists of a fructose and a glucose molecule. So that's table sugar. So as soon as you consume anything with sugar in it, glucose, you break you break the fructose off and in the in the gut you get glucose immediately pours into your into your bloodstream cancer cells have a massive system to uptake massive amounts of glucose because they they're very inefficient so they don't use oxidative phosphorylation respiration they use this these ancient pathways and glucose is one of the two fuels that are necessary for the dysregulated growth so yes glucose is absolutely essential for the dysregulated growth of cancer cells. There, there was something that I think all of that is so interesting. I was going to ask you too, that there are cancers that primarily use the normal way to make energy, correct? So isn't that some pushback on this theory is that there are some cancers that use the normal form of energy production. So I guess I would have thought all cancers then revert to this substandard form of making energy. Is that not accurate? And how does that in any way support or disprove what we're saying here? Well, I have, we haven't found any yet. And those folks that say they have, when you look at their results very carefully, they never remove glucose or glutamine from the, from the experimental system that they're, they're, they're using. And that comes from the misinformation about oxygen consumption. So you do see cancer cells. Even Otto Warburg made this mistake himself, that you see cancer cells consuming oxygen. And then you make the incorrect assumption that they're using the energy that normal cells would use. Well, I want to I dive into your work specifically. But before we do that, do you guys want to do, you want to do Boobs in the News? Let's do it. All right. Boobs in the News is a fun segment where we read funny tweets by real people or ridiculous news stories. Boobs in the News. Boobs in the News. Boobs. All right, you ready for this? Lay it on me. All right. So 
I came across this. I think it was BuzzFeed. It was 15 things that slowly lose their appeal as you get older. Oh, which that okay. totally caught my attention because you know for like you you're like your jowls that yeah. you are well, always no, worried that's, about no that's that's things i don't not not lose their appeal like as in your appearance oh you're so funny <laughs> way to out me and on then the your fa- crows yeah i was just gonna say way to out me on my like jowls that i have an issue with which i don't think you have an out- issue with jowls at i all. do too look at these like weird little side pockets that have just decided to show up on the side of my oh. chin anywho <laughs> I digress. All right. These are 15 things that slowly lose their appeal as you get older. So number one, bars. Staying up late. Totally. Right? 100%. Right? It used to be when you were younger, you were like, I'm staying up. Or I know. I, you I know. know. You take a nap so I could stay up later. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Staying up late. Now, so like last night, my kids, my husband's out of town. So when he's out of town, we get something special. And mm-hmm. they all got to sleep in our room. And they voted to watch Home Alone. And oh, nice. I didn't even make it through the movie. I was asleep <laughs> by 9 p.m. And it felt glorious. Yeah, totally. I was also up at 4.30, but I had lots of energy. Yeah. So staying up late is number one. I didn't agree with number two. Five-day work week. I mean, wait, that lose their appeal. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So like, think about it. Like, I like to have a chill Friday. I still work on Fridays, but I chill Friday. Yeah. So and, and you keep weird office hours. You like to work yeah. late at night. Yeah. So, I mean, well, which yes. is contrary to you staying up late. But <laughs> well, so- I think that there's a difference between staying up late to work or watch a movie at, versus staying up late. Go be out. Oh, like yeah. I don't. My makeup is not on at past eight p.m. Heck no, <laughs> heck no. Okay, so five day work week was number two. Social media, heck yeah. Social media has completely <laughs> lost its appeal the older I get. Well, I think it's because the older you get, you also just start to realize what's important, and you start to realize, oh, sleep is important. You know, social I mean, media. Do I really need to share my life out there? It's my mental health. Social yeah. media makes me feel bad. Yes. Number four is being trendy. I have never been trendy in my yeah, life. No. <laughs> I, I think I was wearing like turtlenecks until I was like 16. I mean, yeah. I've never been trendy. Socializing, you'll disagree with this because you're a social person. Mm-hmm. But the way they wrote it was socializing in your 20s. You think that the old dude in the forest cabin is weird. But by your 50s, he's looking like Einstein. And I'm like, yes. I joke all the time. Oh, that oh I, want, I see. You know what I mean? Like the weird guy in the forest. <laughs> yes. You're like, what a freak. Like, get out yeah. and meet people. Like, uh-huh. why are you so, you know, hermit? No, that sounds amazing to me. Yeah. I, I would be fine with that. Number six is celebrity worship. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I mean, the older I get, I'm just, you know, my kids will tell me who the newest and greatest mm. is. And I'm just oh, it's thinking. The, pop- the popular YouTuber. Yeah. yeah. And, or the influencer. And I'm like, yeah. ugh, bleh. It's not even real. <laughs> Number seven is gossip, which is true. Yeah. I think that's like, I feel guilt if I gossip. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not going to read all these. Oh, hangovers is on the list. <laughs> Yeah, that goes up with number one. I mean, I'm not. I'm on sabbatical right now from yeah. drinking because I'm like, I'm. Done. I've almost reached my year. You have. Sabbatical. Look at Although, you. Although even before that, it had been a long time since yeah. I had a hangover. Yeah, hangovers are not worth it. Yeah, unnecessary or excessive noise. Yeah. I cannot stand when there's so many different competing noises going mm-hmm. on. It drives me crazy. I've talked about that before. My kids are on the TV and my daughter's playing piano and Emily, you know, Charlotte's yelling down the stairs mm-hmm. and the radio's on and the window's open and somebody's mowing yeah. the lawn and my brain wants to explode. <laughs> well, yeah, especially yours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your little ADD brain. Right. <laughs> Big cities. I actually brought yeah. this up to my husband. When we were younger, we loved going to the city. Yeah. You know, whether it be St. Louis or Chicago. Or... I wanted to live in Chicago. Right. I wanted to live in downtown St. Right. Louis, Meets... even though it was like sketch. Yeah. Yeah. But... Gary and I almost got a, an apartment on Wash Avenue. Thank goodness Same. we did. A loft. Uh-huh. Oh, I dreamt of it. Yeah. 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 Because at the time we were staying up late and going out. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's your boobs in the news. Yeah. Boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. All right. We are back. 
So I really want to know if this research is out there and and you have all this information, what is the pushback that you're getting and why is it not becoming mainstream? For great disasters and calamities in human history, there's never a single agent that would be responsible for this. So you have an industry today, both academic from the federal government, the National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health, and then you have a monster pharmaceutical industry that are fused together, developing, uh, being uh, supported by taxpayers' dollars and massive funding from pharmaceutical industries, producing treatments that are highly profitable and largely ineffective. And then you have the, the scientists who, despite seeing the evidence that it cannot be a genetic disease, choose to ignore it. And, and this, this is a part of what happens, like you mentioned earlier, when someone comes to the realization that their dogmatic belief may not be true, they kind of freak out. So what we see is that people aren't really attacking it, the, the concept that cancer is a metabolic disease. They're really ignoring it. And that's typical behavior for something that's very disturbing and a potential disruptor. Can we talk about, because I that this leads me to be so excited to know, what is your work? How do you treat this? If you're treating it, your your research is geared around, this is a metabolic dysfunction. How do we treat this? Because you said it's fairly straightforward and simple. And I do yeah. always think that we tend to overcomplicate things, right? What do you think <laughs> is the solution or part of the solution to treating patients with cancer if you look at it from a metabolic perspective? Yeah, well, I think you're 100% correct about people loving to overcomplicate things. <laughs> you know, you, you figure that, wow, this is a disease, cancer, that's been plaguing us for the last century and and getting worse all the time. And everybody looks at it and sees just so how complicated you have hundreds of different types of cancers, and it's just so complicated. But as I said, the common pathophysiological problem in all of these cancer cells is their inability to generate energy through oxygen and their dependency on, on ferment, fermentation. So specifically to address how we manage cancer, and it's not just our preclinical work that brought us to this. You have to realize that I've been working on this area now for, for decades and had done a real deep dive into what Otto Warburg had said. So it's 100 years ago that Otto Warburg actually defined the origin of cancer. And he and his trials and tribulations were brought out by in Sam App, Apple's book, uh, Ravenous, which he did a great job uh, on that. But getting back to, okay, specifically, how do we manage breast cancer, colon cancer? So if we know that the two fuels that are driving the dysregulated growth are glucose and glutamine, we have to restrict the availability of glucose and glutamine, but we cannot do this using drugs right off the bat. So you, you, the, the body has to be prepared for the drugs that will selectively target those two fuels. So we developed the glucose ketone index calculator, which allows us to measure blood sugar and ketones together in the bloodstream. And we found that humans, that can maintain blood uh, GKI values, glucose ketone index values of 2.0 or below, are now metabolically prepared for using drugs that will further restrict glucose and glutamine. And we know what these drugs are. We've tested them. We've used them here in the in in, in the preclinical system. We use embendazole, which is a parasite medication. 
Uh, why do we do that? Turns out that cancer cells and parasites use a common metabolic pathway. So it's a very cheap drug. And once the patient is in nutritional ketosis, then we begin to administer a low do very low doses of these various drugs that will selectively restrict the availability of glucose and glutamine. So once you, once you uh, lower blood sugar and elevate circulating ketone body, ket cancer cells cannot use ketone bodies as energy. The ketone bodies are essentially designed to provide energy to our brains and our other organs, fatty acids for our liver. So we're, we're able to then transition the whole body off to a healthy fuel that the tumor cells cannot use. And then we slowly degrade the tumor cells by simply restricting the availability of the two fuels that are necessary and essential for their growth, which is glucose and glutamine. It's not that complicated. And it really works well when you do it the correct way. What about the difference between like a keto ketogenic diet and fasting? Because fasting, you know, I've heard fasting is helpful for maximizing the effectiveness of cancer treatments. How does that relate or does it? Yeah, no, it relates perfectly well. The problem is, you know, when I when we first started doing that, we knew from our own work in mice and work with humans who did long-term fasting, you know, most people don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> You know, it seems oh, easier you to, to me than a ketogenic diet, honestly, because keto feels well, like well, it. Keto, would, yeah, no, you can. We glucose ketone index is is diet irrelevant. So oh. you want to eat vegan, you want to eat carnivore, you want to eat Mediterranean, you want to eat pescatarian, you want to eat keto. Doesn't make any difference as long as you can get your glucose ketone index down to two point zero below. Then you can begin to strategically target the, the the glutamine of these tumor cells. So it's it's it, and yeah, water only fasting will give you a real low GKI, no question about it. But a lot of people say, well, I don't I don't I don't want to go for three weeks without eating any food. You know, there are guys out there. Guy Tannenbaum did this. A lot of folks have been doing these water only fasting. But we 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 have a patient that my colleague from Greek uh, with a Mediterranean diet. He's nine years out now with lung cancer that metastasized to his brain, he's still going. And we can use any diet as long as you can bring the GKI down. So if people say, well, I can't eat ketogenic diet, then eat a Mediterranean diet. Eat whatever you want to eat as long as you get a GKI. And then they'll come to realize what they can and cannot eat. It's very simple. Well, and <laughs> you, know? you brought up your friend here with metastatic lung cancer. I want to talk about metastasis because that's, you know, metastatic cancer, metastatic breast cancer is obviously everybody's worst fear. You don't want your cancer to spread. Once somebody's metastatic, let me ask you this. If it were you and your cancer had spread, what do you think is the most effective way to manage this? Once it's metastatic, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. You can't get yourself to a state where you're completely in remission or you believe that's possible. And what would you do if it were you, if you were metastatic? Yeah, well, we, we know it took us uh, 12 years to uh, to understand what the biology of the metastatic cancer cell was. It's a macrophage. It's part of our immune system. What is the biology? What is the cell that actually breaks away from the primary tumor site and starts to spread to other organs? And we've, we've discovered that it's a macrophage. And others have found the same thing as well. All of the metastatic cells, regardless if it's a breast, a colon, a brain, or whatever, they all have characteristics of macrophage. Oh, so now we know what the biology of the metastatic cell is. It's a macrophage, which is part of our immune system. So then you go back and we look and say, okay, what do what is the primary fuels for macrophage function? And glutamine is one of the primary fuels that our immune system uses. This, this led us to realize that if we target glutamine, 
the cancer cell uses glutamine, but we also have our own immune cells that try to pick up the dead cancer cells. So we also realize that our that normal cells of the immune system and the cancer metastatic cell are both dependent heavily on a singular kind of fuel, which is glutamine. It's the amino acid. So that's why we developed the press pulse therapeutic strategy to know that we have to be very cautious on how we target the glutamine. We cannot target glutamine as aggressively as we target glucose because the glutamine is needed for our normal cells. The glucose we don't need, we can switch to fatty acids and ketone bodies. So, so we, we then use specific kinds of drugs that target glutamine, but you have to do it very strategically. You can't just dump all this glutamine inhibitor on the patient because you'll harm their immune system. So once you realize what the metastatic cell is, you can kill it easily. And this is what we've really, we've done. As a matter of fact, what I'm telling you right now is published in the scientific literature. And yet uh, the folks that are in the gene theory uh, thing, they have no clue what I'm talking about. So yeah, why are we doing this? Putting cancer patients at incredible risk for COVID infection, any kind of a, a viral infections, flu, you, 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 you compromise that in, individual's ability to survive based on treating them with a, with a medieval, uh, unknowledgeable uh, approach. With metabolic therapy, they would actually be healthier and be able to resist more of these kinds of uh, of conditions. I want to finish this whole episode with, is there hope for patients that are listening to this that are have concerns? Because we have a lot of patients that we help through our nonprofit, Faith Through Fire, where they are not convinced that traditional therapy is going to help them and they're declining treatment. I want to know if there's any avenue of support for those patients. But first, let's hear from our second sponsor. BJC Healthcare is proud to bring you the best medicine close to home. In addition to two full-service hospitals, Barnes Jewish St. Peter's and Progress West, community members in St. Charles County and beyond have access to the Siteman Cancer Center in St. Peter's, two convenient centers in the area, and doctor's offices across St. Charles County. Visit BJCStCharlesCounty.org to learn more. All right, and we're back. Dr. Seafried, for, for those listening, is there any way for them to ask their provider for this therapy, or is it completely unavailable to the to the masses? Yeah, this is the one of the great problems that we have. Because, you know, I tell folks all this, I publish all these papers, people can read them open access, oh, they get all excited and they say, oh, I want metabolic, this is, oh, this seems so logical. And then they go to their oncologists at the top medical schools and they get slapped down. They say, well, I never heard of this. There's no clinical trials, blah, blah, all this kind of nonsense. It's not It's not scientific arguments. There are arguments for the fact that the field never heard of it. They didn't know anything about it. And those good folks that would love to treat their patients with metabolic therapy will lose their license to practice medicine if they don't follow the standards of care for the treatment of the disorder. So you're up against a system. The system itself is preventing the transition from the toxic therapies that we're using today to a, a scientifically supported logical approach of metabolic therapy. If you can, if you get the meter, like, like everyone gets the, the glucose ketone meter, it's the keto mojo, you can get it on Amazon and then just put yourself into, into therapeutic ketosis periodically. And then it's going to be very hard for cancer cells to recur 
when when you when they're in a in a new metabolic state that's un uh, that's inconsistent with their need for th- fermentable fuels. Yeah, well, that that leads me to my final question. You know, as a patient, like I'm always looking for what can we do to be part of the solution, right? As a patient, if you're looking to lower your risk of recurrence or you're trying to manage your metastatic disease. You can lower your glucose yourself, I mean, to some degree, right? You can take ownership of that. What about the glutamine? I mean, what is there any to-dos as patients that we can do? Or is yeah. are we widely dependent on our providers to give us these specific drugs at these specific rates, you know, this press pulse in order for it to actually work? I mean, is there any hope for the average bear <laughs> to use this yeah. therapy? Well, if you look at Guy Tannenbaum, uh, who was on the web, he had advanced prostate cancer. But he also had type 2 diabetes. He was overweight. He, he, he was obese. He had high blood pressure, hypertension, besides having metastatic prostate cancer. And he just did these long-term water-only fasting and uh, 18 days followed by zero-carb cons- food consumption for a few weeks followed by these fasts. And he's like cancer-free now. And uh, he's all, uh, telling he tells exactly what and how he did it. But this is not what most people want to hear. They want to go to the physician they want to be given some treatment, but it, it, in in the future, this what I've described to you is the future of cancer management. If people want to stay healthy and have a, a higher a higher quality of life, so how long will it take? We have to overcome all of these obstacles, and then we're gonna we're gonna gradually be able to manage this disease in a logical way. Well, thank you so much for coming on, talking to us about all of that. Hopefully we can do our small part of getting this out there to right. where people can consider it. We really appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being a listener of the Besties with Breasties podcast. If this podcast had a positive impact on your journey, leave us a review or consider becoming a supporter. You can donate with the link in the show notes or at faiththroughfire.org. This episode was hosted by Sarah Hall and Beth Wilmus, audio and production edits by Innovative Frequencies.